0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionvoicey.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill.
1: We've been talking about what we call the missionary pathway. This is like our call and our role and our work in the world, who we are as a people and we define churches. The church is God's people, called out of the kingdom of darkness to learn the way of King Jesus as disciples of the way. We're sent into the world to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom with our lives, and call to wor- the world to repentance through our loving kindness to teach anyone who will learn the way of the kingdom. This is who we are. This is the fundamental work that we have, and we we looked at. Last week, some disciple-making movement characteristics. When we see movement of the Spirit of God in training people in the way of Jesus, when you see these outpourings of the grace of God around the world, these five things are almost always true. Six things, sorry. (laughs) Radical prayer. People who are committed to say, we're gonna align ourselves with God by being in his presence and speaking back to him, his will. Um, We are going to live as missionaries sent out into the world to be his people. We are going to teach the way of Jesus by making disciples. And then churches will emerge out of that, church planting. There will be cultural transformation. Because when someone starts following Jesus, you know what happens? Everyone around them is transformed. Whether they like it or not, they have to deal with the kingdom of God coming to life in these people around them. The last thing we see is that there is this multiplication when we live and become people who fall in the way of Jesus Um, it transforms us. And the the way that we see that working within our context, the way we've seen that working here at Redemption Hill over the last six and a half years, is we start off with a a season of extraordinary prayer and fasting. Many of you were in the room with us when we met for those first few times, sitting on back porches and in living rooms, praying and asking God, would you move among us? Would you do something incredible? And then we all... determined to live as missionaries sent out into the world, connecting with our neighbors, sharing with them the hope that we have in Jesus, serving them in real and tangible ways, participating in justice in the world. Um, And then we invited people into our homes. We taught the way of Jesus. We have done disciple making and people's lives have been transformed. And out of that, we've seen now, there's I think 10 or 11 micro church expressions have emerged within us. And in the midst of that, God has been raising up lots and lots of leaders, people like you who have been called to be a part of God's work in the world. So that is um, that is what we've been talking about. Now, week three. If you had three words to sum up the whole message of the Bible that meaningful, meaningfully expresses what it's about, what would you say? Wrong answers only. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, what What are three three words that you would use? They can either be disconnected or connected, but if you had to sum up the entire scripture in three words, what would you do? All right, Love, Keith. Love, redemption, hope. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's All right, nailed it. Are there are there more <laughs> entries into this contest? Uh, Love, redemption, Hope. I like that. Any other three word entries, ideas? Kingdom, kingdom? Covenant. covenant. It's got to be a hard C. <laughs> okay, kingdom, covenant, go. It doesn't sound as nice as yours did, Keith. Well, that was fine. <laughs> ironically she's a writer It's, it's a crazy thing <laughs> We'll be we'll be kind like we were to Keith, not to Jesse. Um, any other three word entries if you had to yes Ollie See he did it in two he didn't need three faith and discipleship. We got a third one. Are we just doing two? Oh, just two, okay. Any other entries? God is love. That's a good one. That's, That's encapsulating. She even got a verb in there. Not bad, I like that. Any other three word entries? All right, well, that wasn't bad. When Jesus, right before Jesus is to sit at the right hand of the Father, he gives maybe the most ambitious commissioning, the most ambitious sending that is ever given to a group of people. And mind you, I, I want to first say I'm really glad that our youth are in here, like our teenagers, for a couple reasons. Number one, you guys are way cooler than these adults, and it really raises how we feel about ourselves when you're in the room and showing us how to be, how to be awesome people. So we're, we're thankful you're here. The second is when Jesus was doing all of his work, he was hanging out with probably 14, 15, and 16-year-olds. And you guys were the primary, the primary plan of the God of the universe to bring transformation to the whole world was to take teenagers like you and say, you're called and equipped. Go be a part of my mission. Go be a part of my kingdom. And so I'm so glad that you're here. So Jesus has his, his posse of teenage boys around him, and he gives them this, this, this calling, this, this commissioning. He says, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'm sending you. Go teach, teach the whole world how to be disciples, all the nations. And then baptize them, give them the identity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that I taught you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He's inviting them into this incredible work that's not, it's not it's not alongside the rest of their life. It is the rest of their life. This is the fundamental truth. Number one: the Great Commission inevitably leads. Followers of Jesus to adopt an expansive vision of the world. Every other religion in the world basically treats it as it's great if you believe it, but it doesn't really matter. You're missing out. That's that's how Hindus think about their religion: is that if if I'm in the Brahmin caste, then I have I have achieved enlightenment through my virtues, and you know if you want to try, you can try to be like me and become. Um, a, an elevated human through reincarnation, but they don't really care. There aren't Hindu proselytizers out there trying to get you to believe and to be a part of, God, be a part of the Hindu way. Within Buddhism, it's the same thing. They don't, they don't really care if you know or if you don't know. But when we believe in the way of Jesus, it is the one true universal experience with God that's meant for every human on the planet. And so these instructions, honestly, they'd be crippling and overwhelming if it weren't for that preceding command. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Gospel saturation, the good news, the kingdom of God working its way through all the world, this is the work. This is the vision. Making disciples is the commission. But fulfilling any piece of it is not dependent on you and me and our wisdom and our strength and our strategy, but rather... It's dependent on us being fully submitted to God. The fundamental truth number two is this. To fulfill the Great Commission and see gospel saturation, we must first understand the essence of the gospel, what it is we're preaching to the world about Jesus. And it is this. This is our three-word Bible summary. You guys ready? Dun-dun-dun, here we go. Jesus is Lord seems super simple it seems like one of the most obvious things if you're a follower of Jesus but within this one statement contains all of Scripture and all of our work and all of the hope that we have in uh, see second Corinthians 4 it says this you see we don't go around preaching about ourselves we preach that Jesus Christ is Lord you see this formulation throughout the New Testament because this was the earliest proclamation of the gospel was Jesus is king over all things. What does that mean? Why, why do we talk about that? Uh, Jesus is Lord. Alan Hirsch describes it as Christianity's like three-word world, three worldview. And by that, he means that we as followers of Jesus should see the world only through this lens, that Jesus is Lord. And for us as People in the 2020s, the phrase Jesus is Lord may not carry that same sort of weight and effect. What does Lord mean? To us, it's a religious term that only describes Jesus. And we have no like fundamental meaning of what the word Lord means. But when we, in history, especially in the first century, when you said Jesus is Lord, it was as subversive as it could be. It was them saying, my only allegiance is to Jesus and not to the powers that be around me. It was subversive, it was treasonous, it was countercultural in every way, and it was a manipulation of the phrase that was used in all public matters. The way people greeted each other, the way people left each other was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, Caesar is King of Kings. This was the greeting that was among the, the, the Roman uh, people in the first century. And so it was countercultural. It was to speak anything other than Caesar's names in the place of lordship was punishable by death. And for Caesar demanded full allegiance and saw himself as possessing all divine authority. The followers of Jesus were refusing to swear allegiance to Caesar. And they recognized that they belonged to this greater kingdom, one that would not fade or pass away, one that would stand the test of time. And these early Christians were declaring so much more than. the the ways that we've talked about what it means to follow God. And we we spent a whole fall message series on this. It's not just I've prayed a salvation prayer and I'm going to live in heaven after I die. That's not the gospel. They understood that the heavenly kingdom would break into the present and the ruling and reigning of God with all the restoration power that Jesus was raised from the dead with would come to life in this world. And so when these first followers were uttering the phrase Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Jesus... Every part of who I am is surrendered to you. It's not merely symbolic. You give, Jesus gives direction. You have full authority over my decisions. You have full authority over my spouse and my kids and where we live, where we eat, how we spend our resources that we have, how we open our home, how we serve our masters. If we live for you or if we die for you, and with this declaration that Jesus is Lord, what we're saying is no matter what, my allegiance is one direction to him. Hirsch writes this, he says, all genuine Christian movements involve at their spiritual ground zero, a living encounter with the one true God, capturing the meaning of for, from him and through him and to him are all things that Paul wrote. So we have to ask, is this the center of who we are as a people? That we have looked upon Christ and said, he is the only one worthy of my allegiance. He's the only one worthy of me orienting my entire life around him and Am I gonna take that encounter with one true God and let it determine every part of how I live? Uh, Steve Addison is a missiologist and, and he looked at an exhaustive study of Christian movements. And the ones that maintain growth and movement over time are the ones that have this white hot faith brought about by this rediscovery of Jesus's place and importance. And so we have to ask, Is Is our life maintained by that white-hot faith, informed by the centrality of Christ? Uh, Hirsch says this, for an underground church, a disciple-making movement, all the clutter of unnecessary traditional interpretations and theological paraphernalia is removed. It has neither the time nor the internal capacity to maintain weighty systematic theologies and church dogma. It must travel light. Faith is once again linked to utter simplicity to Jesus. What happens is movements are started around this white hot faith in Jesus, submitting to his complete lordship. And then over time, we say, well, we should add on to that. We should create some, you know, really interesting ways of talking about it. And as it gets bigger and more elaborate, we start adding on traditions and historical ways that the church has done things. And a lot of things are, are fundamentally about Jesus, and a lot of these things are, are really important to our faith. But too often, what happens is, Jesus' as Lord gets lost among the din and the drab of all of the noise of the world and all the things we add on to it. And so we have to ask, is my faith linked in simplicity to Jesus alone? Do I want this? We're gonna talk a lot about gospel saturation because that is the goal that we have as the people of God is to see the justice, beauty, and reign of Jesus work its way into every part of our city. We believe that that will bring human flourishing. We believe that that will overcome injustice. We believe that that will bring about restoration of families. It will free people from addiction and from pain. It will help people find life i got to tell you, there aren't any other answers out there. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but everybody else is trying everything else and nothing else is working. But what we've seen is that the power of God to overcome our sin and our pain and our brokenness brings life. And so we're praying for saturation of the gospel in every nook and cranny of our city And and our definition of that is that every man, woman, boy, and girl has repeated opportunities to see, hear, and experience, respond to the good news that Jesus is Lord. An encounter with Jesus is is only the beginning. So if if you were to dive deeper into Paul's words, we we looked at um, 2 Corinthians 4 a few minutes ago, but this is what it says. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plain, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glories of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as the servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed we always carry on in our body the death of jesus so that the life of jesus may also be revealed in our body for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body so then death is at work in us but life is at work in you and this passage is so powerful because it gives this vision of Everyone in our world needs God, but the, the what he says here, the God of this age, which is Satan and his and his minions, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're, they're lost because they cannot see because it's been dimmed to them. And so, Paul does this neat thing where he says, instead... For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God gave you light so that you could believe, so that then you would be a light who illuminates Christ everywhere you go. Uh, to, put, to put some movement language around this, we would say that a commitment to Jesus as Lord it leads to this commitment of gospel saturation, of the gospel working its way outward from us. It's a natural outflow, and the former results in the latter, which is a genuine encounter with Jesus leads to the declaration that Jesus is Lord. It's going to produce a desire to see the gospel work its way out and saturate our souls and our cities. Unfortunately, too often we just kind of said well the gospel is Jesus died to save you from your sins so that you can go to heaven and we miss out on this incredible vision of what the world could be in Ephesians 1 we have this passage it says and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way this is the vision that god has is that his kingdom it absolutely does reign over all creation and those of us who have discovered christ are living in that reality and the rest of the world are living in deception the church that's described here in ephesians 1 is fundamentally about this gospel saturation the the kingdom working its way out and here paul says that jesus is filling everything in every way and the church is the fullness of him and so the vision of redemption hill and our partners with the syndicate, is to see gospel saturation in Boise. And, and our mission is to join Jesus in seeing Boise filled with the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus until the whole city is saturated. It's leaving behind nothing and nobody untouched. And, and then beyond that, God's going to overflow from our city into other places in the world. But to get there, to find success in this vision, two things have to be true. First, we have to truly understand the authority and the lordship of Jesus. It's not just something that we say, but it's something that transforms every part of our lives. And the second is, our strategies, how we do it, have to actually match our prayers and the way of the kingdom. So if if this gospel saturation is our ultimate aim, then then planting a church can't be the extent of the strategy because to reach an entire city, we must regain the simple and and reproducible method of Jesus in the early church. Um, If we build heavy structures around non-reproducible personalities, my my personality is easily reproducible, but other people have personalities that are non-easily reproducible. Uh, personalities or programs that will never help us reach our true goal. Expensive buildings and lengthy scholarly focused training environments aren't going to crank out leaders fast enough to see the gospel take root, let alone keep up with the 15 to 20,000 people who are moving to our city every year. We have to go back to a lightweight and deep-rooted disciple-making strategy that unleashes ordinary people like us to plant the gospel, to make new followers of Jesus, and to see simple forms of church emerge in all contexts throughout our city. And so so our strategies flow from a vision of gospel saturation founded in the authority and lordship of Jesus. And as we send missionaries into every corner of culture to make disciples and bring light to dark places, we're going to see these micro church emerge and. Every network, every, every neighborhood, every, every workplace, these extended spiritual families will start to bring healing and hope to broken homes and elevate our city to see and belong to God. They, they will be small enough to move quickly and adapt to new contexts. That's why we do micro is because it can be deeply contextualized to a family, to a neighborhood, to a workplace. And then new disciples and missionaries are going to multiply with other into other unreached pockets of people in our city. These missionaries and microchurches are gonna be the everyday representatives of Jesus in those places. So if we're going to ignite and be a part of a genuine Jesus movement, then we must return and recapture the depth of this statement, Jesus is Lord not only for our mission, but also for our lives. We have to take the throne and the full authority of Jesus to guide us. We must must seek to bend all of our rhythms and our ways around him and his life and his calling. And out of this, we will understand that we have already been sent out on mission, just as Jesus was. Not only will we understand that we've been sent, but we're going to go on mission as he went on mission, fully incarnating which is we're going to be an embodied presence among people who God has sent us to. That means you and me. That means average everyday people saying, God has given me his spirit and his presence, and he's put me in places, and he's going to do something in those places. So we pray with expectancy, We live as missionaries saying, what is God already up to in my workplace? What is God already up to in my school? What is God already up to among my friends and my family? What is he calling us to? And once we turn ourselves to Jesus and submit to him, what happens is spiritual families start to emerge. If you could clear away all of the, the dirt in your local forest, and and look beneath the surface, you discover an elaborate, interconnected network of roots. I mean, did, did that picture not come through, or is it just not? It was. I had a picture. I had a visual representation of this, but I don't see it. Like it, I don't think it downloaded from my slides. So sorry. So imagine you're in the redwoods, <laughs> and. Um, Redwood trees are, they can be 2,000 years old, they can be 300 feet high, and they can be as far, like as the diameter can be almost as large as this room from side to side, like we're talking just massive. And you'd think a tower like that, you can drive a car through them, so you're at least, you know, there's, there's a good, we can, you can maybe half the room, okay. We'll, 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 we'll say the largest ones or maybe the half of this room. Um, but you'd think, how can a tree like that stay upright? Why does it not topple over? The answer is that redwood forests are an elaborate system where the roots grow together. They interconnect, and so even if their roots themselves aren't enough to sustain them from toppling over, they're rooted together so they cannot be moved that's a lot like what it is when we're living as these spiritual families it doesn't always mean that every individual tree in this in this system has a deep root system and 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 often a hefty storm can topple some large trees but it doesn't happen because these these trees that grow in clusters they also are are interconnected with a whole Ecosystem of of plants and animals that share nutrients and and live in a way that create powerful, powerful ecosystems. And and in a lot of ways, this is like a a perfect analogy for the way that Jesus described his people, the church. And throughout scripture, we see a a handful of consistent images that he uses to, to metaphorically describe God's people, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of Christ. However, the one that consistently seems to make its way into everyday language here within Redemption Hill and throughout the New Testament is that we are a family. This is the the key language. Jesus designed his church to function as a family. Now, some of you are saying, that sounds great. I love my family. Some of you are saying, I hope it's not like my family because my family is not something that I want to reproduce in my spiritual life. And some of you are saying, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> just, some, just some of you. Um, Jesus designed his church to function as a family that operates much like what we see in the forest. At its core, at its core the church is the family of God whose members intentionally allow our lives to become rooted together, interconnected, alone <laughs> We are too shallow (laughs) to withstand the storms of life we are too shallow but together an extended spiritual family with jesus at the center can withstand anything that comes along this theme of of family kind of weaves throughout the narrative of scripture and jesus himself instituted and affirmed he loved the biological family he called people to be faithful in marriage and to honor their parents And Paul thought it was wise for people to marry and have children, although he said, I don't know why you'd want that, but if you do, go for it. Um, And then he provided clear instructions on how families should flourish. Like Families are a key part of the way that God made the world to work. It's an institution that brings us into life. And yet, according to Jesus, the biological family is not our primary family. First and foremost, we are members of the household of God in Ephesians 2. And when there's conflicting loyalties, Jesus made it clear. If anyone comes to me and does not reject, who does not hate his father and mother, his wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And so we understand that the gospel, when we see it through the lens of family, although we've sinned and become illegitimate children, God sent his son so that we could be reconciled to the father through Jesus. Anyone can join the family of God. And because... Our God is the perfect dad, and because Jesus is our reconciling Savior, the older brother who brings us into the family, this, and the Spirit is the very presence of God within us, now we're a part of this family that we cannot be removed from. You've been grafted into God's family, and now you belong in a family that you want to be a part of that will bring life and hope, that will bring restoration, that will bring challenge, that will help you live out this Jesus is Lord kind of way. They lived interconnected to one another. Now some of you, because of our culture, are saying, I don't want to live interconnected with other people. I'm not going to ask for an amen, but I can see it in your eyes. Some of you are going, you people are nice for a week, for once a week, for about an hour, on the seat, you know, like two rows over. I like you from that distance. And I, I like you guys, like, you know, when we're together and we, you know, hang out a little bit. But then, like, I need my space, you know? Like, there's this, we live in a hyper-individualistic society. The most individualistic society that's ever existed because our incredible wealth and our incredible technology has allowed us to sustain our lives living disconnected from one another. No one else on the planet Earth at any time in history has felt as disconnected from one another as we all feel in this room. And so this way of the kingdom, this radical way of living these interconnected, interdependent kind of lives is a radical kind of departure from our culture. Maybe the hardest thing about following in the way of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Uh, We see this this passage, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, they had everything in common, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. We always read this as like the Christian communist manifesto, (laughs) because it's like this radical independence, interdependence that we would never engage in. But when we look at Acts chapter 2, this was like the most natural thing. Once they, once they joined in the kingdom way, they're like, well, let's, let's do this, man. Let's, let's not pretend. Let's live as God's people. Let's live as God's, as God's family. And then every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So they, they'd all gather together in a big gathering like this, and they would break bread in homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they weren't going to each other's houses with insincere hearts. They were sincere hearts. I like that. Praising God, enjoying all the people's favor, and the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. And for this reason, within Redemption Hill, our working definition of a micro church. Um, I'm missing a bunch of slides today. I don't know what happened. Okay, it's this. Uh, so you just have to remember it because you can't see it up there. Uh, An extended spiritual family led by ordinary people who live in everyday gospel community and they own the mission of Jesus in a network of relationships. I'll read it one more time. I just want to get this into our blood. This is what microchurches. is. This is what the, the essential unit of God's people is. An extended spiritual family led by ordinary people who live in everyday gospel community and own the mission of Jesus in a network of relationships. The church is first and foremost about this identity, who we belong to and who we are. It's not about activity. We, we have a, for some reason, we have this deep ache in our hearts for people to understand that the church is not a building, it's not an organization, a program, or an event. The church is not built around one or two influential voices, but the church at its core is family. Good or bad, we belong to one another. And if we understand this fundamental truth, the people of God are free to live with passion and love and purpose, and we're open to living with new kind of rhythms that mirror the ways of the early church. And perhaps the most concise description of these happened there in Acts chapter 2 that we just read. Um, They met in the temple. They met in houses. And in these houses is where the church functioned as these extended spiritual families. It was that setting where they lived in an everyday gospel communities. And, and these spiritual families were led by ordinary people who owned the mission of Jesus in their relational network, okay? So these microchurches in Jerusalem had everything in common. They shared possessions, meals, laughter, and conversations. They celebrated together as new people joined the family every day. And they had stories of life with Jesus that they shared with openness and honesty. They, they prepared dinner with many hands. And the eating was accompanied by more laughter and stories. They were so glad to be together. And each would say, these are my favorite people because they're my people. And the conversations moved to the discovery of the apostles' teachings together, each retelling what they had heard about Jesus and his ways. Can you imagine? They're sitting around. They don't have a Bible. And they go, hey, I remember this one time. And then one of the apostles sits and tells the story of what he had heard of what he had experienced in Jesus' presence. And people would ask questions, and they would explain what they had learned and what they had seen in the life of Jesus. That's what our gathering should be like. They had been taught to obey all the things that Jesus had commanded, and so the conversation moved from the stories about Jesus to the practical obedience that that took on. Prayer kind of flowed continually, and it was challenging to figure out who was in charge. As each person, it says in 1 Corinthians, they brought a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation to their gatherings to share. What a beautiful picture of the family of God. Everyone belongs and everyone brings something to share. And then in Acts chapter 8, something happens. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the temple that had been the center of the movement, they'd gather every day for worship and for prayer, all of a sudden that was removed from them. And then following Stephen's martyrdom, the church experienced this severe persecution, resulting in the complete shutdown of public gatherings at the temple courts. But what happens next is not the church's death, but instead a multiplication, scattering of God's people. Now we experience this, right? Just four years ago now, I can't believe it's been four years, but four years ago, the world ended. We weren't allowed to be together. All of a sudden it didn't make sense to be gathered in a room filled with 50 or 100 people. And so what happened? We said, that's okay. This is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing happens in our houses and it happens in, our, in the courtyards of our homes and it happens in our front yards. It happens sharing our lives together. And what we experienced was we almost doubled in size during that nine months that we were in COVID. Something happened because God had sent us out from this place and and let us live in this true identity as this network of families, of people that belong to one another and to God. Micro church is is not a trendy next thing. It's, It's not a program that's gonna attract masses of people got to be honest, you probably struggle to tell your friends about what we do here because it's a little weird, right? And you're like, we do this thing, and I don't know, it's kind of, we, we talk about microchurch, and we, you know, we, and, and they go, I don't get what that is because it's, it's, not, it's not like something new. It's, it's not a small group that's seeking spiritual truths together, but it's, it's the primary expesh- expression of God's people. It's the form that best houses the essential functions of the spiritual family. It's the form that can change and adapt and multiply and thrive regardless of the environment. What we've seen in China and in India the last 25 years is movements of hundreds of millions of people coming to faith in little huts, in living rooms, on floors and garages, there's this movement of God that can happen in these small spaces that doesn't happen in big spaces Uh, when we talk about microchurch we we have a a fundamental definition once again my slides they're just all over the place okay I'll just read this to you and uh, maybe I'll send it out to you if you strip away everything that's not essential to being a church what are you left with take away everything that's not absolutely essential what do you have Well, the answer that we've decided on is that it's worship, community, and mission. When Christians work together in sincere worship, work together in sincere worship and genuine community to accomplish the part of God's God's mission, they function as the church. Worship, community, and mission, then are the basic elements. The church can include more elements, but not fewer. What makes a group of people the church is that they worship together. They're committed to each other and they undertake the mission together. Whenever those three things overlap, that is the church. This is what we call our radical minimum ecclesiology. Radical because it rips out everything that's not necessary. Minimum because it's the simplest expression. Radical minimum ecclesiology just means how we think about the church. So when a group of Jesus followers together engage in these lifestyles and practices, we have church. It is an oikos, this this extended spiritual family. It discovers Jesus together, begins to walk in obedience to his voice, and these rhythms start to take shape, and new spiritual families emerge out of that. As those who are once far from God confess their sin, respond to Jesus' words, they get baptized, and they share good news with others in their lives. So anytime you have those three things, up, in, and out, worship, formation, mission, that's it. You don't graduate from that, it doesn't get bigger than that. The microchurch may differ and mature in some of those practices, but the functions of worship, community, and mission, they remain the primary functions of the church. Oh, there's always too much to talk about. Shoot, all right, well, we'll continue on next week. I'll let the band come forward. Some of you are kind of starting out this this call and this work. You've just begun your walk with God, and you're saying, I want more. You showed up at at Redemption Hill this week because you're like, I need to connect with God, and I need to connect with people who are going to help me walk with God. And our hope is that while you're here, that when you hear God's voice and when you're with his people, that the gospel itself, Jesus as Lord, saturates who you are. His Holy Spirit enters inside of you and invites you into the mission that he's called you to. And so we want to see a missionary team in every neighborhood in our city. And we can't do that alone. It's not gonna be just this, this crew of people, but over time what we see is that multiplication breeds multiplication. We, we wanna see what we're doing here transform lives, not, not be an interesting way that we do church. The grand mission, simply put, is the purpose of the family business, the microchurch, the extended spiritual family, We think that doing our lives together and being shaped in the way of Jesus will bring life. But when we look back on 1 Corinthians and that three-word statement that contains the whole story of the Bible and what's to come in our eschatology, Jesus is Lord. That brings some questions with it. The first is, are you going to bow your knee and submit humbly to the Lordship of Jesus. Are you going to let him have access to be Lord over every part of your life? To be Lord over your relationships? To be Lord over your work? To be king over your addictions? To be king over your family relationships? Or are you gonna continue to hold back and say, You can have this piece, but not this piece. It requires us to give ourselves completely over to the authority of Jesus' kingship in our lives. And once we do that, he's going to say, come, follow me. I'm going to teach you how to fish. I've got work for us to do together in the family business. I'm going to apprentice you in this partnership to see justice, beauty, and the good news fill our city. And we get sent out as a part of his calling. And so some of you, you need to receive this, this message, Jesus is Lord, and let it penetrate deep into your lives and say, hell or high water, I know who I fall with. Come persecution, come sickness, come death, I know who I'm putting my trust in, and that's Jesus. And all that takes is just bowing your knee and saying, I'm going to take the the crown off of my head as Lord over my own life, and I'm going to hand it and set it at the feet of Jesus and say, I only have one king, and you're him. You get to determine the rest of my life. For some of you, over the last few years, you've started to submit yourself to Christ, but you've still been holding back. He's got key ways that he's been calling you into work alongside of him and you've been saying that's really not my gifting or man this is a really busy season or shoot uh you know i'd love to lord but that would require me to like talk to people and like like them and i'm just not into that whole thing or maybe it's bigger than you think you are there's some there's something that god has given you a vision for and your response is i don't have enough for that i'm not big enough i'm not old enough i'm not wise enough i don't have all the tools that i need jesus is lord whether we acknowledge it or not whether we live like it or not jesus himself is lord of all creation And if you want to experience him, you've got to put him in his right place, put you in your right place, and then submit yourself humbly to say, I'm going to let you have my life and do with it as you please. Would you stand with me and pray? Lord God, we want to align our lives with you. Lord God, there's still places that I'm holding back from you. I I don't give you lordship over my calendar. I fill it with what I want to do and what I feel like doing. Lord God, many times my finances are dictated by my desires and my needs and my fears rather than by your calling. Lord God, there are places where I still let sin roam freely in my soul and Hold me back from you and from others. Lord God, there's all these places where I sit in darkness rather than enter into your light. And I pray, God, that today you would help me once again repent of the ways of this world, of the ways of the flesh, and commit once again to say, Jesus is Lord. And that if I want the life that comes from you, I have to walk through the death to myself. Lord God, have your way as we seek you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And at the Last Supper, Jesus, he took the meal that had been set before them for the Passover and he broke the bread. And giving thanks, he said, this bread is my body that was broken for you. And each time you eat of it, do so remembering me. And in the same way, then he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant written in my blood. Each time that you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. And then Paul gives us this warning to not do so in an unworthy manner. And I think that like there's been a lot of conversation about what that means, but that simply means someone who has not submitted to the lordship of Jesus but participates in the table does so in an unworthy manner because this is a step of allegiance to Jesus. And so I'd like you to take, take a few moments of preparation and then during this next song, come forward and receive communion as a, as a symbol of your submission to his kingship.
0: Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Voices. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.